on this episode of the LP Literature in Practice. I've even had students tell me, yeah. I wish my teacher knew this about me or that I could do this, but they can't express mm. it. You can reach students who speak all kinds of languages. That's a psychological barrier that can be overcome. Not only can language function as both a bridge and a barrier, but it can reveal the barriers and bridges that are inherent within us to build. The proof of this can lie in how we interact with and educate English language learners in our systems. Too often, the bridges of grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction are limited and the barriers of misconceptions arise. These misconceptions about English language learners often hold educators back from properly serving these students. I got a chance to talk with educator Barbara Gottschalk to discuss her book, Dispelling Misconceptions About English Language Learners, Research-Based Ways to Improve Instruction. Join us as we discuss practical ways to overcome psychological barriers, shift away from assumptions, and tap into students' strengths through their home languages. This is the LP. Welcome, folks and fam of All Walks and Talks to the LP Podcast, Literature and Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourage student instruction to be more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. And I am excited for our next guest. We have none other than the author of Dispelling Misconceptions About English Language Learners, Research-Based Ways to Improve Instruction, Barbara Gottschalk. Barbara Gottschalk has taught English language learners from first graders to graduate students. She's done this in five states in three very different parts of the United States, as well as in Japan. She holds an MA in teaching English to speakers of other languages, as well as an MBA. Without further ado, Ms. Gottschalk, how are you doing? Fine, thank you. Awesome, awesome. Um, so, you know, we always have a kickoff question, the same kickoff question for all of our authors, which just feels natural to ask. What was your favorite text as a kid, as an adolescent, and as an adult? Well, um, my favorite all-time book, even as, as a child, and even as an adult now, too, was a Charlotte's Web, the one by E.B. White. Yeah. It's a classic, and I think it is a classic because it has such you know, universal themes of friendship and birth and death. It was telling my story because I grew up on a farm in Nebraska and I raised pigs just like Fern, the character in the book did. That's why Charlotte's Web spoke to me. So I think that's kind of the same way, like with ELLs, it's so important that they see themselves in their books and other teaching materials because that's what Charlotte's Web did for me. Well, that's powerful. Charlotte's Web is definitely a, a, a book in my own heart and mind where like it was an interesting story. It was a window story for me. It wasn't a mirror story, right? I got to see, you know, what it meant to like be on a farm, like get, get uh, like the perspective of what it means to be the animals, right? But one of the things that I remember most about and appreciate most about Charlotte's Web was this attention to like vocabulary. I, we read it in second grade. Wow. And we, we read it slash it was read to us in second grade. Oh, okay. I just remember learning words that were just like a step up from like any other kind of words that I learned before. And they were pretty advanced for arguably for second grade, including some of the words that were in the web, right? Like a radiant, (laughs) it was new vocabulary that pushed me. But let's talk a bit about your book. Who is your text designed for? Well, my book is mainly designed for um, general education teachers. 
and you know, not nearly enough states require uh, specific training in teaching learners for teachers' you know initial certification. But I'd like to see this change. But in the meantime, I hope my book can help. I hope so too, and I'm pretty sure it will. Sometimes I feel like education it's not always sensitive to the time and energy limitations of professionals that are working in K-12 systems. And not only in length, but in direct language around what needs to happen to best serve English learners, the book makes sure that that takes place. So I think a lot of people will be able to access uh, what you would like uh, for them to do. You asked classroom teachers who are reading in your book, these general education teachers, to make sure that their perceptions match reality when it comes to providing instruction for English learners. Why is this important if we're talking about providing the best instruction for English learners that's possible? Well, um, I guess well, we all have uh, a tendency to make assumptions based on our personal experience, <laughs> maybe teachers especially. But I would love it if people who read my book would step back and ask themselves, you know, what's behind my opinion? Do I have evidence to back it up? And I'd like teachers to consider that what, that maybe what they're seeing in their classroom, does it apply to their, just their classroom? Or consider that, is it applying to their whole grade level, their whole school, their whole state, their district? I guess I'd like readers to really consider is what I'm seeing local or is there more context to it? Yeah, no, that makes sense. One thing I appreciated about the beginning of your book was kind of like the multiple choice, like, you know, asking questions about what the reader believes is true about the English learner uh, landscape in K-12 education. And some of those questions by myself was just like, oh, I didn't know this or, oh, I didn't know that. And, you know, being able to have a good just understanding of the local, regional, and national lay of the land for that is really essential if you're talking about educating English learners appropriately. You mentioned research that shows including student home language into instruction helps students learn the English language. What obstacles, psychological and or professional, may make this effort a challenge, and how do we remain undefeated by those challenges? Well, providing it to all students, even in a diverse setting. For example, I once taught a fourth and fifth grade class of newcomers, and almost all of whom spoke Arabic as their native language. And the Arabic speaking paraprofessional who worked in my classroom was a really good help for those students, but maybe not so much for the one Bengali speaker in the class. But on the other hand, the Arabic speaking professional, paraprofessional was also a retired ESL teacher. And she had training on how to provide language support to all kinds of students. I guess what's important for gen ed teachers to realize is that you can reach students who speak all kinds of languages. That's a psychological barrier that can be overcome. That kind of commitment to serving those kids in the classroom, I I, I just find very special. She clearly cared about educating kids. There were things about that process that she didn't like, but it didn't stop her from still finding a way for her to serve these kids. What are the best things for a classroom teacher to do if you are in a situation where many of the students don't speak a language that may, like, you may have more familiarity with? So, for example, in my case, right, I have some familiarity with the Spanish language. Many Americans 
like have more familiarity with the Spanish language mm -hmm. just because of, I feel like it is more integrated in popular culture. We have Spanish speaking, you know, countries like in close proximity. But however, if a student who speaks or many students who speak Arabic or if they speak Swahili or if they speak uh, French or French Creole, there may be more of a challenge. In my case, at least there was more of a challenge to be able to provide access points. And let's say that they're all three of them or all four of them are being spoken in the same class. How does a, a general education teacher in particular, how do they not feel overwhelmed in well, making sure that they're not captured by misconceptions and that they actually serve these kids well? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the reality is you can't, the teacher can't provide home language instruction to students whose languages that they don't yeah. personally speak. The, the thing to do is to really, to get training, things you can get from my book, and as well as uh, just like overcoming psychological barriers that you can reach those students. Maybe I always used to say I can't speak Swahili, but I can speak English as a second language. I'm linguistically cognizant of of what I'm speaking. I take care of how I use the language. Like, well, you, you know how teachers will take care to use higher order academic words? Okay, well, in the same way, you might be, take care to use a, a simpler word and then pair it with a higher order academic word so that you reach all students that way. Yeah, when you said that, it reminded me of something you said in the book, which was your students should say, hey, this is Ms. Gottschalk, she makes things easy. <laughs> Right. Yes. Um, and and by that, I understood that, you know, that that cognizance that you just talked about, where you are very intentional around yeah. providing access. Right. Yeah. Um, even if there are diverse languages being your home languages, you know, being active and present in the classroom. You also like encourage readers to not assume cultural background knowledge um, as these social and linguistic references may be unfamiliar and confusing to newcomers. So uh, how do you imagine newcomer background knowledge being used in classroom instruction? I think first of all is to start out by acknowledging the back the knowledge for like, for example, one of my colleagues taught social studies and invariably when he would point out locations on a map, he would always point out students' home countries. And of course, what was cool is that he actually knew mm -hmm. students' home countries, really brightened up the students, their interest and it also was acknowledging their background. And on the other hand, it also added new knowledge to the other students as to where it was. He was always framing the discussion like about geography with respect to what the students background was. You know what I mean? And also, as you pointed out earlier, a good way to assess all students background knowledge before you begin a unit of study is to like give a little anticipation guide or pre assessment. And you can go over the answers before you even begin the unit. And that way students will understand better about what they're going to be studying. And you might find out, and the students might find out that they already know a lot more than they think. Our CEO, Lacey Robinson, calls it the edgesphere. Like just the world of the education profession, particularly literacy, there's a lot of buzz about the role that knowledge building plays in literacy acquisition. It's becoming clearer and clearer through research that knowledge building plays a bigger role in being able to read than most people understand. And you know, when I would read your book and you talked about accessing the knowledge of uh, English learners, and I hear what you're saying now, there's a big opportunity to help kids uh, have access uh, to the English language by doing what you just talked about. And that's, you know, research backed, but it's important to break through that misconception first 
that they don't have any background knowledge, right? Yeah, um, right. They may not necessarily have, may not necessarily, and this is, you know, may not necessarily have mainstream American background knowledge. Right. And that might not even be true because <laughs> yeah. they may very well have some, but like, you know, like they have their home background knowledge. I remember there after Hurricane Maria, there was a lot of students from Puerto Rico that came to our school mm -hmm. and their English capabilities were very limited. Uh -huh. But guess what? One of the kids was a chess expert, <laughs> right? And so we would constantly play chess and build knowledge through that and build language capacity reciprocated through yeah. that, right? You know, I'm learning a bit more about Spanish. He's learning a bit more about English. And we're having, we're able to actually have discourse and it was really rich, but we, I, you know, his background knowledge, which again, wasn't just limited to the island of Puerto Rico. It was, an, he, he knew the international game of chess <laughs> and we were able to kind of build. And, and that was, that was fun. And I think linguistically fulfilling for both of us. Oh, and think of yeah. how, how great it made the student feel to be able to show something he could master because that's so sometimes yeah they can't ex ex they can't show that i've even had teachers or students tell me yeah. i i wish my teacher knew this about me or that i could do this but they can't express mm. it so yeah great when we talk about english learners we're talking about people we're talking about an experience right that that uh people you know, have, but it's also like a label, right? Um, that is actually like used in the structuring of K-12 schooling. Can you explain a bit the equity implications of correct course placement and timely English proficiency screening for English learners? Ooh, yeah, this is a big, this is a big issue um, and so important. For example, in the district where um, I once taught in Michigan, it needed to be done within 10 days of enrollment. But now in North Carolina, where I live now, the guidance is that it needs to be done within 30 days of enrollment. So obviously that's a pretty low bar, but you'd certainly want to do it sooner than that. You know, you're wasting a lot of time. There's so much research about how placement can have lasting implications like for students in high school, like for example, because if they are placed in certain courses, it almost makes it impossible for them to follow a course sequence that will help them get ready for college admissions or even to allow them to take advanced placement courses huge implication yeah yeah uh i've i've perused through a lot of that research and it's it's just been interesting to see how you know depending on how your systems are operating yeah, there can be like a yeah like a almost like a gatekeeping of intellectual and academic and career opportunities as a result of like timely placement and effective placement and assessment. And you even talk a bit about that with um, not just having like, you know, testing and assessment for our English uh, learners, but like having testing and assessment, effective testing and assessment for English learners to have like special education resources. Mm -hmm. There's a diagnostic around like the current language capabilities, but then there's the diagnostic around the learning capabilities and how they learn, right? And there's just like two layers of potential success and, you know, potential need provision, but also the potential to miss and to disservice, mm. right? If you're not really thoughtful and you, and you, again, you're not 
kind of plagued by these uh, misconceptions, which I'll, I'll quickly go over real quick. And let me know, this is me paraphrasing them, by the way. So let me know if I got any of them a little off. Okay. But you provide a list of about like nine misconceptions. One, guardians not speaking English to their children at home hinders progress. Yeah. That's misconception one. Yeah, yeah, yes. Two, immigrant parents aren't involved. Yeah. Three, you can't teach newcomers if you don't speak their language. Yeah. Four, an English learner doesn't need extra attention if they speak English. Mm-hmm. Five, English learners don't have any background knowledge. We talked mm-hmm. a bit yeah. about that mm-hmm. misconception already. Six, English learners can't be taught standard aligned curriculum. Seven, English learners need to be successful and rigorous work quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that, I'll, I'll be honest with you. That was, that was one that was harder for me to turnkey because <laughs> I was like, I, I know that the, the, the terminology was around this idea of being in like a rush with the kids. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and because you're rushing, you're misdiagnosing, you know, their ability to do it. Right. That's what, it, that's, that's what I was trying to capture. Yeah. Okay. And then last but not least, special education services are simple to identify with English learners yeah. as a misconception, yeah. the final misconception. Yeah. How, how do I do A plus, B plus, yeah, B, B minus, plus, C plus? <laughs> Which of these misconceptions do you see being addressed the most in your work? Speaking the home language is somehow damaging. I'm seeing on an mm-hmm. a, I'm seeing more and more dual language programs and more emphasis on bilingual programs. So, and I, that of course reflects the belief that maintaining the home language is, is helpful for students. So, and in, in my own school, that seemed to be the misconception that seemed to be the easiest for teachers to change once uh, research was explained to them. It's yeah. one of the it's one of the first it's one of the ones that lay people have the most often. But I think when research is laid out it's one of the easiest to change, or at least that's, mm. I, and I saw that in my own experience in my own school. One of the misconceptions I think that still needs addressing the most is the misconception that immigrant parents aren't involved. I think this is mm. driven not only by cultural, but also class bias, because um, we mm. teachers will forget that parents can be engaged in very different ways. It can look very different for lots of people. And that what we, seems like an easy, ask to us, like expecting children to bring your children to an after-school program. Isn't very easy if the transportation isn't provided and the family's only car is being used to get the breadwinner to work. As you were talking about these biases that mm-hmm. can exist in the profession, and as you were talking about it with, with insight around the variety of ways the parents of English uh, language learners can be active and involved in their, their students' learning, I was thinking about how how you were raised and where you were raised was was this a linguistically or racially or ethnically diverse like rural community that you were brought up in it was an economically diverse community so how what took place in your journey to bring you from there to this very ethnically and linguistically diverse work and like speak to it so clearly and wanting to do best by you know, this this large and diverse population of students that we serve in our country? Mm. Well, I guess because I grew up in such a rural area, I always wanted to see the world, go outside. My first exposure to non-English speakers was in college. I had lots of Chinese-speaking friends from Hong Kong. 
And, and so it was good that I went to yeah. a big university that I was exposed to that. And then I uh, taught in Japan, not children, but adults for several years. And that, that opened it up. And so when I, that I liked the, the challenge and I, the linguistic challenges. And so that's what drove me to, um, to study it back here in the States. And hearing your story, first of all, thank you for sharing. And thank you for, I think, doing the work needed for addressing misconceptions, for interacting with people, period, but definitely for serving people <laughs> who are more you know, proficient in uh, other languages than English. I, I think that's important for general education teachers and ELL teachers to hear. Honestly, I think my own misconceptions around who, who does the work and why they do it got checked a bit. Right. So, you know, thank you again for uh, sharing that. It was a window for me, a window for me. Yes. Like, sure, that's what was a yes. window for you. Nice. <laughs> the final question I want to ask, what's the final quote from the book that you like to share? Um, well, the, well, I have a lot of quotes, of course, but I kept saying that it's, it takes time. And especially it mm. takes time to master academic English compared to conversational English. And as students get older, that gap between conversational and academic keeps getting bigger. So expecting high school students to master high school level English is, is it's not an impossible task, but it takes time. And the research says from five to seven years. And so this is one of the first things I learned in my classes on how to teach English learners. And it's probably one of the most helpful principles that I was able to share with my uh, general education colleagues. It takes Time. This spin of the LP with Barbara Gotch Chalk left me with a few things to reflect on in process, and I often reflect process through poetry, so during the season, I'll be exercising that practice more often. Mother tongues are too often called welfare queens in a classroom if the father is an Anglo-Saxon, thinking their thinking is fractured just because we only see fractions when really the common denominator is implicit bias. You say they can't do the work in English when you won't do the research. They can't decode our alphabet yet, so you encode misconceptions. But acknowledging knowledge, pursuing patience, and crafting opportunities will flip the script in a mindset mutiny, giving us a window for service and a mirror for scrutiny. Thank you, Barbara Gottschalk for your time and your book, Dispelling Misconceptions About English Language Learners. If you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge in your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website at unboundedorg forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media. Find us on LinkedIn or Facebook or you can find us on Instagram at Lit in Practice Pod or Twitter on Unbounded the LP. On your social or podcast platform, please leave a review and let us know who you'd like for us to interview next. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP, Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourages student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace and progress.